Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast is a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Concerning Him seeks to enrich Christians around the globe by educating and equipping them through various media. For more information about Emmaus, please visit Emmaus.edu. Hello and welcome to another episode of Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Daryl Bach. Welcome, Dr. Bach. It's a real pleasure to be tucked away in this intimate corner of Dubuque, <laughs> Iowa. We are happy to have you here. Yeah. I, uh, Dr. Bach, you are a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. That's right. You are uh, author of, of many books and commentaries. That's correct. Um, and uh, uh, many other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> we are very happy to have you on. Just to get started... Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners probably know who you are, have read some of your books, have, have heard some of your messages, but if you could give us a, a background about who you are, uh, where you come from, what your training was like, yeah. Okay, in the beginning, I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, left there when I was uh, two years old. I tease people, the only thing I remember about being in Canada is the diaper changes were cold. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and then uh, grew up in Texas, basically, um, and then went to the University, University of Texas, then to Dallas Seminary overseas to do doctoral work at Aberdeen. And I've been teaching at Dallas Seminary for 40 years and uh, did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, came to the Lord between my freshman and sophomore year in college, a five-year pursuit that God had um, with me. And so I hit the ground running. Uh, when I responded to the gospel, I was I was basically ready to go and uh, taught Bible studies in college with college students age kids. We packed out a four bedroom apartment uh, at a Bible study um, that uh, was a lot of fun because a lot of friends. And then uh, went to seminary, came back and been teaching at Dallas. It's the only place I've taught uh, in terms of long term career. I've had a lot of adjunct relationships with a lot of other schools. In recent years, your role at Dallas has kind of changed. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Could you talk some about what you're doing at the center? Yeah, it's changed by addition. So, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, so I didn't leave the New Testament department and stop doing my technical New Testament work where I'm now senior research professor. But then uh, I became executive director for cultural engagement at the Howard G. Hendricks Center for Christian Leadership. We just call it the Hendricks Center. And uh, there's a Christian leadership director, Bill Hendricks, Howard's son, and myself. Uh, I transitioned, and then the other co-director, who was Andy Seidel, retired, and Bill came into his place. And so Bill and I have been working together. I've been there a little over 10 years now, and Bill and I have been working together around eight years. We were having a conversation the other day, and you were telling me that, telling me and, and Chad that, that's kind of what you ultimately wanted to do. Is that correct? That's right. I, I, I see the natural outworking of studying the Bible as actually applying mm -hmm. what the Bible is talking about and, and, and doing the things that God calls us to do and be. And so, um, so yes, I was always moving in a direction in which the application of the Bible and the ethical thrust of the Bible was uh, paramount in thinking about what's going on. It comes from a doctrinal base and from the teachings that are a core of the Bible, but ultimately, if you're not practicing what God is asking of you, then you're not actually, um, I think, understanding the passage. Mm. 
And so, um, so yeah, so we've worked in areas that relate to the application of the Bible in the current context and helping people understand the current context of what's going on around them, which is a moving target and shifting. And so, and it's shifted significantly even in the 10 years I've been at the center. It was already shifting before we got there. The reason I came to the center was that we were training leaders and we were dealing with the character of the leader and, you know, issues of administration, how to be a, build a team, the characteristics of leadership, all those kinds of things. But it became clear as the culture was moving that if the Christian leader did not understand what was going on around him or her, that uh, then uh, that would be a problem for actually leading. And so my role was to come in and help us think through that. And we did it primarily through a podcast that I do called The Table, uh, which... Uh, and, and it's voice.dts.edu slash table podcast. Yes. Okay, so that's the PR part of what I do. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and we've just finished almost 10 years and 500 episodes. Wow. Yeah. You still enjoy doing it? I still enjoy doing it. I have a team that I do it with, and so I'm not the only one hosting now. Um, we've built a team, a diverse team <laughs> of hosts, and uh, so Bill helps with it some. Kim Cook, who is our assistant director at the center, uh, has been hosting now for a few years. And then Mikel De Rosario was hosting with us. He's now gone to teach New Testament at Moody, but he was hosting with us for several years as well. He's a Filipino, uh, a Filipino American who um, who grew up in the Philippines. His his dad ran a school in the Philippines, and. Uh, and he is, uh, has just left us, so we'll be replacing him uh, probably in the near future with two other uh, women who are on our team. And, and so your podcast is, in, in connection with the center, is hoping to or, or striving to teach Christians about how to engage in the culture. Is that right? And so... What, how do you approach who you have on and what topics that you talk about? Well, our, 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 we got, our introduction is, welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. Not that I'm trying to co-opt your podcast. No, no that's fine. I, <laughs> and then, I want to hear about this. And then, this and, and, then, uh, and then, so when I say, when we talk about issues of God and culture, and in my mind, I'm going, <laughs> that means we can talk about just about anything and everything, because <laughs> God kind of occupies a lot of space. And so... Um, uh, and then we we pick a topic that we want. We, in some cases, build series that we're doing and uh, select someone who we think is a good conversation partner. The idea of the podcast itself is a place where we can have just a good conversation that's worth overhearing, that is instructive on the one hand and, and hopefully also informative on the other. And, uh, and then we engage with our guests, usually – it's usually just one other person, but sometimes it can be two or three. We've done, I think the most we've done is four at one time. And, uh, and we just probe in a topic, and then we go for about 45 minutes. Okay. And then we'll listen to it, and we'll go, you know, that five minutes, that could use another 45. Mm. And so our, our thinking is we introduce a topic, and then we go deeper with the subsequent things that we do with it. And, uh, and we're always rotating. We never do a series in sequence. We always do a new thing every week. But we're building series in the background in terms of what we do and the way we archive what we do. So if you come to us and you're here one particular week and you go to the web page, you'll realize, man, they do a lot of stuff. I mean, we've done 
the LBGTQ thing from about every angle you can think of. We have done a thing on world religions, focusing on Eastern religions that most people don't know very much about. And we handled that uniquely in terms of how we went about it. And then we've done a whole series of apologetic stuff. We've done a series on the Nicene Creed. Mm. Uh, uh, so it really, we've run a whole series of apologetic stuff, historical Jesus stuff, because that's the area I work in. And, uh, and then uh, Mikkel had a degree in apologetics from Talbot Biola as well. So, so it's just an array of, of stuff. We've, we've built a series that we're calling uh, Christianity Around the World, where we focus on a particular nation, we talk about the makeup of that nation and then the kind of ministry and what it means to be a Christian in that nation. We're building that series. So they're all, that's all happening as we go. And uh, the hope is that someone comes to our page and looks at it and goes, that's interesting. And we also want to keep a global focus on what we do. Uh, we've done series on race. We've done a lot of stuff related to the race conversation going way back before, um, back as far as, you know, when Ferguson and things like mm -hmm. that were happening in the, in the um, first half of the last decade. And so, uh, and then some of them are just technical presentations of discussions of, um, of what's going on in the Bible. The LBGTQ one that I always smile at is that we did a, we did a podcast call, uh, called the Queen James Bible, which actually exists. <laughs> it was uh, a series on the eight biblical passages that get challenged in a discussion on, on the same-sex um, conversation uh, in which people who were gay-affirming were saying, this is the way these passages should be read. And so we brought in um, an Old Testament person and three of us in New Testament and discussed all eight of those passages one at a time in two shows, um, giving about 15, 20 minutes to each one of those texts. I'm curious, and this is not the purpose of our, of yeah. our conversation, but I'm very curious. How, how reactionary are you? For example, um, George Floyd and the Minneapolis riots, do you go into a conversation that week on race? Do you wait? time? How do you guys approach those? We are doing everything in what we call evergreen format. So we do not respond to the news directly. Okay. Uh, almost never do we do a show because of a particular event that has happened. Okay. We're always discussing the event from a big picture point of view in which a particular event is a manifestation of a larger area that's being discussed. And then we think about that biblically. So we're not... We're, we're not like a news podcast, yeah. you know, you, um, uh, you wouldn't see us on CNN anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, we wouldn't be on CNN or, or Fox or MSBC, MSNBC for that matter, because what we're trying to do is to, is to discuss how do I walk into this space biblically? And we're, um, and there are times where we'll get particular, but we're more interested in the biblical principles that are involved in being in the space and how to think about it and how to approach it much like much of the stuff I've been doing here this week for the, for the conference that has been held here that I'm, that brought me yeah. to wonderful downtown Dubuque. Well, and, and I should probably mention that you are here currently for the BTN conference, Brethren Training Network conference that's mm -hmm. being held at, on the Mayus campus. About a year from now, you'll be back for our Iron Sharpens Iron conference that we have on Which campus. Which you've been doing for year. 22 years, 22 right? years, That's yeah. amazing, yeah. And, and Alex Strauch will tell you he's been at every single one of them. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I like to tease people, if you're ironing, sharpening iron after 22 years, at some point your iron needs to get sharp. 
<laughs> so uh, anyway, so well, I hope it's working. When when you're there next year, you can tell us. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, certainly related to everything that you're doing at the Hendrick Center is this book, Cultural Intelligence. Mm-hmm. This is this is kind of been the theme of, of what you're you're speaking on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be the theme of what you're going to speak on next next year at mm-hmm. Iron Sharpens Iron. Because culture doesn't go away. Culture doesn't. It does change though. It and does you, change. You, you yeah, do it's flipping all here. the time. Um, to start talking about this book, which which I found fascinating, uh-huh. how how do you define this word cultural intelligence, or could you define this word cultural intelligence? Well, the first us? thing to say is is that when the moment you speak about culture in the singular, you've already gotten off on the wrong foot. Okay, because um, we're actually made up of cultures, multiple cultures, and they rub against each other, and that's what produces the cultural dynamics that we see. I, I compare it to plate tectonics in in uh, geology, uh, and for some of you, this will be bringing back you know lessons that you learned in middle school that might traumatize you. I'm trying <laughs> not to do that, but anyway, if you remember when you just did plate tectonics, they rub, you know the continents sit on plates and they rub against each other and they build up pressure. You build up enough pressure, you get an earthquake or you get a volcano, okay, which are catastrophic events mm-hmm. of one kind or another. So cultural intelligence is understanding how to read what's going on around you and how to make sense out of what's going on around you and how to respond in a biblically appropriate kind of way, which means that it's not only what you believe that's important, it's how you respond. There's a tonal relational element to cultural engagement that is about more than understanding the culture. and it's how to react within it and how to deal um, in, in a way that is biblical. We work through several passages in which we talk about we're supposed to be gracious, we're supposed to be gentle, we're supposed to handle with respect, we're not supposed to act out of fear. I just m- went through a list of things that we perhaps tend not to do sometimes. Mm. And so um, thinking through the tonal aspect and the relational aspect of where we are as Christians in a context of a culture that tends to push back against Christianity is important. I tell people that um, that we've gone from being the home team to not just being the visiting team, but to be the visiting team that happens to be the rivals that get booed. Mm-hmm. And so in the midst of, of that environment, how do you respond well when your calling, in part, is to ask people who are outside the church community to consider uh, to consider what God is doing and to come into this community that is different than the world that they're in. And so that's the challenge. As as you were th- are thinking through this and, and you're observing the Christian culture, I'd say specifically in the West or specifically even in America, what did you observe that made you say, okay, I need to write a book about this? Well, I just got uncomfortable with the way the church was responding, that it was— um, I really think that the culture war, because it's not rooted mm-hmm. sufficiently enough in a biblically grounded response, um, was doing damage not just to the church but also to our society by the way we were going about defending things that ought to be defended. And so, uh, and and I thought the texts showed where the problems were. So I thought I'm going to write a book. The first chapter it has six texts that are a foundation for a theology of cultural engagement. You won't find a book on the theology of cultural engagement that I know anywhere. Um, all the books on cultural engagement immediately dive into the issues. We're trying to come alongside and say, before we think about the particulars of particular issues, we need to think about how we approach the space in general and what it is the scripture has to say to us about the way we're supposed to engage 
in the world as Christians. And so these six texts kind of mark out the territory and help to do that. And the moment you read them, you realize that there are things that we are doing currently that don't match what God asks of us as Christians. And it undercuts our testimony. In Could the you give us some exo- some examples? For example, things. in 1 Peter 3, we're not supposed to be responsive out of fear when we get pushed back for being slandered for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you happen to be pressed on for doing the right thing, and this passage says it three times in the space of a handful of verses, um, it says you're blessed and you're not supposed to fear or be terrified of those who are putting pressure on you. And I look at the way the church responds to what's going on around it, and I see, I think, a lot of fear and a lot of terror. Or uh, we're supposed to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Okay, that's 1 Peter 3.15. Most people know that verse because it's in most memory packages. And our term apologetics comes out of that verse. The term for defense is the term apologia. But we're supposed to do it, verse 16 says, with courtesy and respect or with gentleness and respect. And so there's a tone that comes with it. So I can be right on the, on the doctrine, on the facts, but if I'm wrong on the tone, I'm still wrong. And, and so that, that tonal piece is so important to how we engage, even in the midst of doing challenge. And then there are other passages that I talk about in the book where you watch uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, challenge his audience, but before he challenges his audience, he actually engages with them and tries to connect with them before he issues the challenge. On the premise, I think, that is a, a solid idea, that is people will not care about your critique unless they know you care. And so establishing that tonal base is extremely important in how we engage. And I look at how, I was looking at how the church was responding to a lot of things in anger and pushback, in not making much effort to hear um, the cries coming our way. Granted, there were things to disagree with, but there also were things embedded in there that needed attention. And so the all or nothing response that we tended to respond with um, made it very hard to think that Christians have any sense of, uh, of awareness of the nature of some of the problems that we face. Um, we all live in a fallen world. We all uh, fall short of what it is that God asks of us. And the humility that that should generate in the midst of even uh, articulating for the truth should be, should be reflected in how we engage. And I just didn't see it. It, it was, it's fascinating to me. You, you brought up uh, Paul in Acts 17 and Mars Hill yeah, yeah. in the book. And uh, you mentioned that he doesn't, he doesn't preach to them from any text. Yeah. He, he preaches to them uh, based on what he's observing within their culture and, and giving some context to it and, and explaining it further. He even cites a pagan poet in the midst of making his point. And it made me think he'd, he'd fail pretty much any, any homiletics class yeah. if he were to go up there and give that sermon. Well, what he recognizes is <laughs> he's recognizing something pretty f- profound, which is if he cites the Bible, he's citing a book that his audience doesn't even know. And so... Um, I mean, the people at Mars Hill didn't know Genesis from Malachi. They had no idea what the Old Testament was. Uh, uh, and so um, so he's working in vacuum. What's really interesting is I, I contrast Romans 1, which is where he talks about yeah. the culture. And you see his critique of the culture. It's pretty serious. Um, I summarize it in a real technical theological term, the term called yuck. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, there's our, our 
culture's a mess, is what he's saying. He's setting up the idea that everyone sins and falls short of the, of the glory of God. Chapter 3, he's doing that starting in chapter 1 with the Gentile world. And then, so you know how he feels about the culture. And then in Acts 16, before we get, sorry, Acts 17, before we get to the passage, it says he walked around Athens, was provoked by the idols, which is a fancy way of saying his blood pressure changed. He was not <laughs> happy about the idols that he was seeing. But his opening line is, I see that in every way you are religious. Mm. And uh, and I'm a child of the 60s, so you know I read that line. It catches me totally by surprise. The tone of it catches me by surprise. The tone of it catches me completely by surprise, given the fact that he's been provoked by these idols. And I ask myself, Paul, what have you been smoking? <laughs> and, and then what I see him doing is actually doing this. He's actually opening a door. And he's opening a door by connecting to them. And in the midst of opening the door and connecting him, he says, I see you are engaged in spiritual questions. Let's talk about spiritual questions together. And then he dives in. And he dives in and he challenges them on the one hand, but he also invites them on the other. He invites them into the opportunity for a different kind of life, for a connection with the living God, et cetera, that's important. And of course, one of the challenges today is we have a lot of people who are agnostic or atheistic. So the moment you say God says, they've got a problem with both the words in that sentence. So how do you create categories for people who do not have categories to process what it is the Bible is, what it is the Bible is saying? That's the challenge. The other problem that we have in our engagement is we engage when we engage with the Bible directly is we will say it's true because it's in the Bible, okay? But the Bible doesn't mean anything to the people that we're talking to in many cases. So we're citing an authority that doesn't count as an authority for them. And then you need to think about, so what is the Bible actually? It actually works in the reverse way. It isn't true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true which means the way we ought to be thinking about it is, why is it that God would say this is a good way to live? And if we actually think about what inspiration actually is and what it's designed to be, the emphasis is not on, the emphasis isn't just on the Bible is God's book, if you want to think about it that way. The emphasis is it's, in God, it's God's book because of what is said within it that is true and that is something to live by. And we've got to do the work of not just putting the imprimatur on the Bible and what we say, but understanding and wrestling with why would God say this this way and why does God say this is healthy for life? So it's, it's principles like that. That's why I say this is a meta conversation. We're coming alongside before we even walk into the space and we're act, act, asking, how should I be responding in that space? How do I respond to the person who is saying things that I know are, are problematic biblically, et cetera? How do I deal with that space? And um, some of them are these principles about how to engage with tone. And the other key, key part that we've emphasized here all week for sure is the idea of being a good listener. Mm. I'm, I'm interested, uh, and part of this relates to towards the end of the book, you talk about the direction in which we, we read the Bible and yes. communicate the Bible. Yeah. So this is related to that, but it, it occurs to me that somebody would critique what you're saying mm -hmm. by saying by, by citing probably Romans 10. Uh -huh. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And we need to take every thought captive to the uh, Absolutely, and, and they would Paul say, epistle, yeah. you know, thinking, uh, uh, talking about maybe the, the supernatural 
effect that scripture has. Mm -hmm. And they would say, our goal is to give those who need the Lord, give them scripture. Uh And, And what is your response. Well, that's that. actually what Paul does in Acts 17, but he doesn't cite scripture in doing it. He just tells the story of the scripture. Okay. And he gives the concepts of the scripture and he's teaching the ideas of the scripture. So he starts with the idea of we're all made by God. Mm-hmm. So we're creatures. Okay. So first thing we got to do is figure out where we are on the ladder of creation. <laughs> okay. All right. We're not at the top. We're not on the top rung. Okay. We're respond. We're created by a creator, and we're responsible responsible to that creator. So that's step one. Of course, in our world, where there's where there's a certain portion of the world. This isn't true globally, but there's a certain portion of the world where the whole spiritual realm is in doubt because we're materialists, basically. Um, uh, that even that even that starting point is problematic. We've actually got to go before there to get to that point. But for a lot of places in the world, there is they people don't doubt that there isn't a spiritual world and a spiritual realm, and so the idea of God and forces that we can't see and touch is something that is accepted. So part of it has to determine where you are with your audience. This is why the listening is important, mm-hmm. and then uh, and then and then you dive in. So what Paul did is he told the biblical story. He told what it is that God was about and doing. He was telling the story of where the covenant and promises and commitments of God take us and why he sent Jesus and those kinds of things. But he didn't say, pick up Mark and read it. Of course, he couldn't. Mark wasn't written yet. Uh, but uh, but he was. he's delivering biblical concepts, but he's also delivering them in a way that they can process and understand and at least have a chance of grasping because they haven't spent their life in the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, and so how do you do that well? So that's another skill that we need to learn. Most of us who share the faith have been in the church. We've been taught a completely different theological language. Um, I tell people our language is, is like a foreign language to a lot of people. So we have to translate it in a way that's clear. We have to listen well. We have to translate it in a way that's clear. Uh, we have to have a testimony behind what we say that shows a consistency between what we're saying and what we're doing. And you put that package together, that's going to involve an engagement with people outside the world in their spaces that shows that when we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or however we present the gospel to to lay it out initially, we are able to communicate God so loved the world that he gave. Mm. And we give and we serve, and in giving and serving, and in showing that we care, we create the room also to offer the critique. You've, you've talked a lot about listening. You, yeah. you quote a few different times. You, you, you referenced James 119. Mm-hmm. Um, quick to hear and slow mm-hmm. to speak, right? And that's... And slow to anger. Slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Amen. And with that, I want to get a little more practical. Uh-huh. Um, it's... What is it? The third of June, as we're recording right yeah, now. Right. We we just started Pride Month. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It's been huge all over social media, especially people of my generation. Where it's it's everywhere on social media. Uh, it's everywhere in in friends and family and things like that. And as, as we think about the culture war, which is kind of what you're critiquing, is the approach to the culture war, which we typically think of each side kind of launching their truth arrows at each other and hoping one hits. Right. This is a no, we need to stop and listen. So you, could you apply that maybe specifically to this area of 
sexuality, of homosexuality and bisexuality, the transgender movement. How do Christians use cultural intelligence in, in America today to interact and to listen without, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go from there. I know two things about people who claim to be same-sex oriented who have made a choice of a same-sex lifestyle. I know two things theologically. One is they've made a choice to act in a certain way that runs counter to what Scripture teaches. But the second is that I know they're also made in the image of God. Mm. So if I only care about one of those features, um, I actually allow their emphasis on their sexual identity as being defining to also define the way I react to them. Okay. Okay. But if I see them as made in the image of God with the potential to be restored, with the potential for God to do a work in their life, then I have another way of approaching them that isn't locked into the identity that they are putting in my face. So I tell people, this will sound dismissive, it isn't, but it's designed to reprioritize. I tell people a person's sexual orientation when it's being pushed becomes a distraction to me Mm. about interacting with the person if I'm not careful. And so what I want to do is I want to interact with the person. I want to get to know a little bit about what is motivating them to be so attracted to this thing that they're identifying with and what's taken them there. Are there stories of loneliness in the background? Are there stories of abuse? Are there stories and causes that have caused them to go there? What's, what's going on? And you do that, that's what the listening is designed to surface. If it surfaces those things, then what you say is um, people understand loneliness. They understand the pain of loneliness. Okay, But then you say, but that's not the only way to deal with it. Uh, that's not the only place you, you – you're not required to go there, that kind of thing. Um, so my point is that I'm trying to deal with people as people first, made in the image of God, and then the choices that they make. And actually, I don't care what that choice is in some ways. You know, We talk about it in the area of sexuality, but it would apply across the board to everybody. I'm, try, I'm trying to interact with them at, at a personal level as their person first – and take their choices as a part of that picture, but not the whole picture. And I just think that slight reconfiguration makes a difference. Let me tell you about another configuration that's important. Usually when someone disagrees with us and we turn it into an us and them conversation or we make it into a binary and you know I'm all good and they're all evil, that kind of thing, my goal is to crush them in the conversation, to show that they are wrong. Okay, And that's what I get focused on. But what I need to understand is is that this battle is a spiritual battle. This is Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 says our battle is not against flesh and blood. And when I read it, I repeat the not, 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 not against flesh and blood and say this is emphatic so that people will get it. People are uh, are not the target. They're the goal, okay? They're not the enemy. They're the goal. And so, so I'm thinking through... What is actually going on? And then I'm told this is a spiritual battle. It involves spiritual forces that are negative, you know, characters like the devil who's engaged in deception. So what that means is, is the person is trapped in a spiritual perceptive reality that distorts reality around it. 
And so I tell people, if you want a military metaphor, rather than thinking of yourself as a battalion who needs to crush and defeat the enemy, you're more like special forces rushing in and trying to rescue somebody, okay? Someone who's in danger. Only the trick here, and this is how Satan works, the trick here is that they don't even realize they're in danger. Mm. It's one thing to be kidnapped and know you need to be rescued. It's another thing to be in danger and not even being aware of it. And so, so you know, I, I tease people, they need to join the GIA, God's intelligence agency, <laughs> and they need to be these special forces people, the GIA, and they need to recognize when a person disagrees with them, they, have, they are caught in a, in a spiritual world and a spiritual perception that has them reading the reality around them differently, and as a result, making choices that are not healthy and that are not good. So how do I do that well? And how do I do that with a sense that says, my goal is not to crush them, my role is actually to invite them mm. into a different way of living. And a different way of living that I know is solid on the other end. You know, I came to give life and give it abundantly. I like to tell people eternal life is not just about a uh, life of duration, okay? Because I, and then I tease people because the idea of living eternally with someone who's not worth being around is not an attractive idea, mm. okay? The reason what makes eternal life eternal life is who I spend it with. I spend it with the living God and the Creator, and I have a relationship with Him. And so I'm 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 pushing hard to get that to see that it's a life of quality, not just duration, and that that's what's on offer. And it's called the gospel good news for a reason, because it is good news. And that good news isn't just that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to avoid a very warm place for a very long time. Okay, the good news is I am reconnected to the God who made me, and I now am living according to the way I'm designed to live. Now, it's really tough to take a Phillips screwdriver and put it in a normal screw. Mm. That doesn't work, okay, because you're not utilizing the pieces in the way they're designed. That's dysfunctional. Life's the same way. It's dysfunctional when I'm not living out the way I've been designed to live. And part of the challenge for people is creating categories for people they currently do not have, but to show that there's a different way. And oftentimes the way we do it is not by talking them and convincing them logically this is going on, although that can be important at certain points. The way we actually end up doing it is people see a difference and they're, they're, they're captured by the difference. And they become open and curious as a result which is why showing who we are is as important as talking about what we believe. And the world is certainly quick to point out hypocritical behaviors. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And we fail. Sometimes we fail. We're, we're, you know, you know um, I, I, I tease people that when they walk by a Christian, they ought to, they ought to see the sign that says, your tax, do your tax dollar is still at work. You know, uh, God's not done with me yet. That, those kinds of things. And that's not to excuse what we do, because sometimes we do things and, and we deserve the pushback that mm -hmm. we get because they are legitimately hypocritical and we should be doing better. But there are also times when we fail because we are flawed beings. We're still flawed beings. And so, um, and, and so we, we just have to live with that, that sensitivity and that awareness. I also say to people that the way most Christians are perceived in the world today for people who never darken the door of a church is they either get their definition of what a Christian is from other Christians that they know and watch and or from what 
the world says about Christianity. And then I like to say, and how many of you would like to have your Christian faith defined by either of those two sources? And so, um, so there's lots going on here yeah. that, that has to be overcome. There's a lot of static in the world that has to be overcome. And the best way to overcome that static is to be the people of God in faithfulness in the way God called us to do it. And with the tone that shows why it is that God himself, when he had a choice about how to deal with the world, actually sent his son to die for us before he ever thought about exercising any judgment. Hmm. I want to just shift into the one one last topic okay. here that I, I talked about just a little bit before, and it's it's the direction that we read the Bible. You kind uh-huh. of talked about this at the end. Yeah. Could you elaborate on these these two different views yeah. on that? So here here's what what I say is is that we teach our leaders in our schools, and you know I'm someone who's been in a seminary for forty years, so I'm uh, I, I come into this conversation guilty as charged. Um, we we teach our our leaders how to go from the Bible to life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually good. That's actually one of the ways to teach how to handle the Bible. So when we talk about expository preaching or we talk about doing good exegesis or the value of commentaries, going through a passage, studying a a character, doing a topic, no matter how you think about it, um, when we go from the Bible to life, that's one way to handle the Scripture. Almost all our instruction goes that direction in the way we teach people how to handle the Bible. My own premise is, however, that most people don't read the Bible that way. Most people read the Bible because they're in a certain situation in life, and they come to the Bible and they want to know, what does the Bible have to say about where God has me? Hmm. And so if I can't also teach how to go from life situations back to the Bible, which is a different kind of reading, that's a canonical reading. That isn't based on one passage or one exposition. You've got to look at the topic from the variety of angles that the Bible handles it from and put that all together. It's harder to do. That's why we don't do it. And so, and go from life back to the Bible, which means when I start with life situations, well, life situations are messy. We live in a fallen world. They're not clean. They're not pristine. The reason a pastor has a problem when someone walks into his counseling office is because things aren't being done in a biblical way. And so how do, you, how do you do that? So how do you teach our leaders to, I call it reading the Bible in reverse. How do you teach leaders to read the Bible from life situations and determine how the Bible addresses that? Isn't there a really big danger for eisegesis there? Well, it's only danger, the only danger there is for eisegesis is if you ignore what the Bible is actually saying. Mm. And if you, or if, and this is what often happens, or if you shortchange what's in the Bible, by going to some passages and ignoring others, uh, which is what we tend to do. We tend to cherry pick. So we'll go to a passage that says where we want to go and really highlight that, and we'll ignore the passage over here that's qualifying that in some way mm-hmm. or putting up a, a warning or a caveat about how we approach the space, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's, a, there's always the danger of eisegesis because everyone likes to have their, uh, their preferences uh, confirmed. Uh, you know, we talk about confirmation bias and when we talk about these areas. So we're tend- we tend to be slow to see critique. Um, I-, I-, I tell people that um, the real test of a good Bible student 
is when a passage catches them out by saying something they didn't expect. Mm. The question is, how do I handle that? Now, there are three ways to handle it. One is to try and concoct an explanation for why my initial impression about how I read that isn't the case, okay? which usually is a way of walling off the passage. We have ways of doing that. We can get very sophisticated in how we do that. The second is to just ponder it and throw up your hands. I have no, I just don't know what to do with this text. Okay. The third is to ask the question, is this text raising an angle on the topic that is not in my current set of categories and that I need to add to the list and think about? Mm. And actually engage with the question, why was I so caught out by this text? Uh, why did it not deliver what I expected? That kind of thing. So I'll give you an example, a challenging one. <laughs> um, we talk a little bit about race these days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a lot of people are very nervous about how we walk into the race space. There are a series of passages, more than one in the Old Testament, in fact, uh, I, I'll name them Amos 5, Micah 6, Isaiah 58. In all three of these passages, the same basic metaphor is used, and that basically is, if you do not care about justice, I do not care about your worship, mm-hmm. which is a pretty important priority alignment because we tend to really highlight worship in our thinking. We, we dedicate parts of our service every week to how we worship. We even debate which kinds of songs we should sing (laughs) in our worship in order for it to be legitimate worship. We pay attention to worship. God says, you know, in some of these passages, you know, should I offer 10,000 calves? Should I pour out oodles of oil? Should I even think about sacrificing my child? You know, so I worship correctly and show how I'm related to you. And then in the Micah passage, he says, I've told you what's good. Mm. I've told you to pursue justice. I've told you to um, be obedient. I've told you to walk humbly with me. I've told you what's good. And so, and then you got to work on defining justice clearly. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's important. But my point is the first step, the, the meta step, the side step is to recognize Justice is pretty important to God. Mm. If it's pretty important to God, it's not a topic that's off the table for me. I appreciate that. That is that is a challenging one, and because I, that is something that today people don't people are too scared to enter into that conversation. Exactly right. Times, and yeah. think about it this way: think about the race conversation this way. We can do what we've always done and just push back. Okay. Uh, pushing back will take us nowhere, and we all recognize we're not in a good space on race. We can withdraw and say, it's just too big, I can't handle I can't do anything. That won't bring any change either. The only thing that will bring change is to actually work through it. And the only way to work through it is to work through it in engaging with people whose ex- life and experience is different than your own and who engage with it, particularly with Christians who operate in this space, who have been saying to us for decades, at least to a portion of the church, you don't get our experience. You don't get what we've been through. You don't understand what we face from day to day. And to actually sit down in relationship and listen, just listen, and hear what that experience is and understand the nature of that difference will put us in a better position to say, now how can we join hands together and deal with this? 
Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. I think we'll leave it there okay. as a, as a, a really good example <laughs> to finish off on. Remind everybody again, how could they can, how they can listen to the table podcast voice.dts.edu slash table podcast, all one word. And, uh, and we do a new, uh, episode every Tuesday. Okay. And, uh, um, yeah. And we look forward to seeing you on the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. Perfect. Well, uh, we'll, we'll put that link in the description here and then, uh, B and H academic mm-hmm. published this cultural intelligence. Everybody should check it out. It's a great book. Thank you very much for coming on today, Dr. Brock. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Concerning Him, an Emmaus podcast. Ministries like Concerning Him are possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.